3: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings.
4: Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of the podcast. This week I chatted with Betty Robertson, a scriptwriter, narrative designer, and super creative human. She's worked on several projects, most notably writing for Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed games Odyssey and Valhalla. After listening to her awesome interview on the AC Sisterhood Speaks podcast, I immediately reached out to invite her onto the podcast. I like so many other classics and ancient history nerds, I'm a massive fan of the Assassin's Creed franchise. So this was a super fun, special experience for me to be able to peek a little behind the curtain and learn about her writing process for Odyssey and Valhalla. We spoke about overcoming creative blocks, trying to balance the history and folklore elements when writing for Odyssey and Valhalla, and about whether being involved in the making of video games in any capacity could be considered a STEM field. We mostly spoke about the AC games, seeing as they're the most overtly mythological and thus have the most overlap with ancient studies. There are spoilers ahead for those who have not completed the game, so if you have not finished it, you might want to do so before listening to this episode. You've been warned, so without further ado, enjoy the episode and I'll speak to you all soon. So thank you for joining me this afternoon. This is really exciting for me because I'm always looking to talk to really, really creative people on the podcast. So if you could just start out by like telling us a little bit about yourself, like how did you get into writing and anything you want to include? Well, thank you for having me.
1: Delighted to be here and delighted to be called a very creative person. That's what I aspire to be. So my name is Betty Robertson and I write video games. I write other things too, but video games are what I have credits on. And yeah, you know, I actually started my career or my journey into writing as the intentions of going into making comic books because I did art as well. And so I did this program where I, west coast of Canada, Camosun College Comics and Graphic Novels program, which is run by A lovely fellow named Ken Stacy and his wife, Joan. Ken's a longtime colorist and artist for Marvel Comics. Joan is an independent comic artist. And yeah, they taught us the ins and outs of making comics, making maquettes. So I got some screenwriting lessons from that, uh, as well as a lot of storyboarding. And, but before that, I, I was always kind of a writer type. I spent a lot of time, like in school, just doing fan fiction online. And just kind of refining the craft that way, which is something that I've found is that the one creative thing that you can't stop doing has to be the thing that you do for money because you're going to do it anyway. And some people will disagree and like, it's totally valid to just have a creative pursuit to yourself. But it's like, okay, if I'm going to be doing this all the time, I think that it's a skill that I have put, you know, those hundred thousand hours into and so I think that it's it's my best skill and it's something that I can market myself with. Yeah, from there, I went to animation school because I wanted to do commercial animation. You know, I wanted to be uh, like a Disney Pixar type, my own cartoon and stuff. And uh, after graduating from that, that program actually was more focused on video games than it was on like TV animation. And so I got a lot of game design from that. And I was kind of at this moment in my life, this crossroads where I was like, okay, what what do I want to do and why? And so I assessed what the most powerful narratives I was finding myself connecting to at the time, which is about 2015. And uh, I was like, video games. I'm really connecting to video games right now. And I think I want to be a video game writer. I think that's something that I can do. So I looked at the two biggest hubs for video game writing or you know video games in North America which are San Francisco and Montreal and San Francisco is a very expensive place to live and at this time it was about 2016 and I was like he's not going to become president but just in case just in case Uh, (laughs) but I already had a Canadian citizenship and my parents met in Montreal so I moved to Montreal I continued writing kind of for myself, working on various different projects, you know, writing that first novel that everybody has to get out of the way where it's like, I've done it. I've, I've completed my magnum opus. And then you read through it afterwards and you're like, well, I'm glad that I did this once, but it's not great. And I was lucky enough to make it into the Pixels writer's group cohort, which is a wonderful program they have here in Montreal. And I was part of the second cohort And through that, I was able to build a big portfolio, make a lot of industry connections and eventually get a job working for Ubisoft. And then I was uh, one of the coordinators for the third Pixels writing group, because I like to pay that forward. You know, I love teaching and I love talking about game writing and narrative design. And so I thought that was just a great fit. And a lot of those students are, are now have careers all all on their own. And I'm just so stoked and so proud of the program and of all the people that are in it. And yeah, now I'm, I did the thing. I write video games for a living now.
4: Which is awesome. Cause as obviously an avid gamer like myself, we we are the beneficiaries of those thousands of hours that you put in and now are, are out there actively creating. Yeah, I want to take a a small step back because I wanted to get an idea of how you quickly got from A to B, but digging in a little to just that love of of writing and creating narratives. If you think back for a moment, when you were a kid, were you that kid who was always either writing the stuff or were you voraciously trying to read everything you could? I was both.
1: I think that an important part of writing is reading and you need all of the input like in order to do the output and sometimes like this is what i tell people when they're having bad creative blocks is like have you been reading lately read stuff that's good and try to emulate that read stuff that's bad so that you feel better about your own writing and it's like wait this shit got published wait, can I swear on this podcast? Of course. Okay. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait, this shit got published. Damn. I'm going to go back to writing, you know, whatever I feel like writing because the bar is so much lower than I thought. But yeah, in, in terms of, of game narrative, like I I remember being very invested in it early on and gameplay as well. My mom always tells the story of me being about five years old and she found me like, zoning out just like staring off into the middle distance with the most intensity and she was like hey kiddo what you thinking about Penny for your thoughts and i was like okay if you can just get Ipana across this bridge into the gerudo territory that but like she won't cross the bridge so i'm wondering if it's an angle problem um or like if you can cross the bridge and then summon her with Ipana's song and my mom's like oh my god <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh, I love that. That sounds exactly like something I would probably do. Yeah. Probably.
1: Shout out to the Spirit Temple.
4: Oh, Your I love author. that so much. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, when I was younger, I fancied myself, oh, maybe I'll go and, and write these great things. I'm going to become a great author. That did not happen because I think I discovered that I, I much preferred reading this stuff been trying to go ahead and write my own things yeah I don't know it's like the the dream that doesn't quite go away because I, I suppose you know you can always get into writing doesn't matter when you can just start writing and if you have good ideas they're good ideas yeah I think I held that belief that naive naive belief that I was gonna write something great until I was 15 the age that Christopher Paolini was when he published the Aragon book and then I just realized I'm not going to do that. Okay,
1: but Paolini's parents were the editors for Knopf, so that's cheating. That's just <laughs> nepotism. Everyone's like, oh, Christopher Paolini got published when he was 15. It's like, yeah, he had a lot of help. <laughs> His family owned the company.
4: <laughs> that's the true. Ergon books are not that good. <laughs> I know. You know, it's so funny because thinking back, it's like, if I read them now, are they the greatest written things ever? Hell no. Absolutely not. But I loved them when I was a kid. I guess it was there for me when I needed it. I don't know. Like I can I at this point in my life I'm like I can't tell if they're just like actually good or good for little kids when you don't know what good is.
1: I think that both of those things do qualify as good though. It's <laughs> <Just laughs> <That's-> like <laughs> I think that the winner is always the person who had the pleasant experience. So, like, if these books give you pleasure, then they're good. And, like, it doesn't matter if, if you know, the ivory tower folks are like, oh, that's not real literature. It's arrogant. Um <laughs> 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 You know, if you're having a good time, power to you.
4: That's true. Well, but- and I will say the the books were 10 times better than the movie that we did not don't acknowledge
1: There was a film that I'm sure, for sure. I saw it. (laughs) It did not retain much, except, why were they wearing blue jeans?
4: The the whole time I, f- I felt like I was just kind of like zoning in and out. Like, these are so unmemorable. Am I going to remember this? And and the, the, the reality is no, because when I saw it was popped on to one of the streaming services during the pandemic, I was like, oh, I haven't watched this in years since it came out. I remember two things, being really excited, knowing that it was going to be adapted into a movie, and then the sheer amount of disappointment coming out of the movie theater after watching it.
1: I can't remember if it's Malcolm McDowell or the guy who plays Scar who plays the villain in that movie, or if it's neither of them. I just feel like it's one of those two because they have questionable taste <laughs> um, <laughs> and are like, you know, they're working actors. They will go in for a paycheck and, and being like, oh, you're in this too? Yeah. Oh I'm wait, so no! Sorry. I remember.
4: I did watch this earlier. No, the villain was John Malkovich, which was Malkovich. Such that's an, who it is. It was such an interesting creative choice that I was like, "Why is he your villain?" Also, I was just like imagining the villain was such a much deeper voice, in the fact that they got John Malkovich, I was just like, "I have questions. Malkovich, a lot of Malkovich. questions." Yeah, but I don't. I don't know much about the Canadian schooling system. And, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's pretty similar to the U.S. system, but is there a specific year in school that you learn about the ancient classical civilizations? Like for us, it's like when you hit sixth grade, you do like ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome, and then it's like seventh and eighth grade. It's like U.S. history stuff.
1: We did ancient Greece and Rome for seventh grade. Sixth grade was a little bit of Egypt.
4: Eighth grade, we started getting, eighth
1: grade, we did the Renaissance, actually. Yeah. Canadian history is high school. It's not taught in middle school for us or junior high. And even then, it's barely taught. <laughs> it's like, okay, guys, we're going to talk about a colonialism, which we will gloss over. Uh, then we're going to go on to Louis Riel and how he was totally <laughs> angry for the wrong reasons. Or was it the right reasons? It's Canadian teaching systems. It depends on who you're talking to. And then they'll be like, World War One. World War II,
4: and nothing else happened ever. (laughs) Interesting. Well, one, congratulations for escaping, having to be a poor eighth grader and stuck in, you know, history of your country. Because let me tell you, taking U.S. history in eighth grade is just like a terrible experience. Or at least that's my perception because that was not my jam ever. I was always just like, this is so boring because you just puff yourselves up and talk about how we're the best in everything and then screw everyone else so i'm just like yeah definitely not my jam but okay so if you did egypt greece and rome in that sixth and seventh grade sphere how did how did they approach it at your schools did they do like a really interactive thing did they like assign you a bunch of stuff to read like do you remember anything
1: I mean, I was very much an autodidact when it came to classic studies. My mom is pretty into it. And, you know, growing up, I was obsessed with Egypt. Actually, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. That was the first career that I wanted. And I was like, oh, it's too much school. And like, there's not enough positions. And, you know, oh, the, the, Egypt has become kind of a, a, a difficult place right now due to more and unrest in the Middle East. You know, I was thinking all of this when I was like seven years old. Actually, no. When I was seven years old, I was watching The Mummy and being like, can I do that? <laughs> and then when I was about 10, I was like, mm, maybe not so much. I would still love to visit. I'd still love to like, you know, go see the Valley of the Kings and be like, Pharaoh Hatshepsut commissioned this after they they ran out of places of so the previous tombs. The Valley of the Kings, it's a it's Pharaoh Hatshepsut that was rubbed off by her little brother, her history was was erased, not not due to being a woman or being a non-binary person, though I I try not to approach that in kind of a modern sense. We can never ask the pharaoh Hatshepsut what their pronouns were. Um and yeah, but just just following like the interesting dynasties. I, I mean I particularly love the Tutmosis dynasty, 18th century Egypt is mashit. And similarly with Greece and Rome were much more in my mom's bag and so like I grew up reading those myths and was even the person that the teacher called upon for difficult pronunciation in seventh grade she'd be like Betty how do you pronounce this I'm like Dionysos Uh. I love that so much I
4: wish (laughs) I had reached that level of cool in like seventh grade I definitely yeah definitely my, my parents are great but they both their strong suits are not in history and mythology. You know, it's like one's a lawyer and one is a music teacher and a voiceover person. So they're just not into what I was geeking into. And I I love that you wanted to be an Egyptologist because when I was in sixth grade, I wanted to be an Egyptologist
1: because that was the year
4: that we did Egypt. And my teacher was this wonderful wonderful woman who made it such an interactive experience i mean she did stuff that was so ballsy back then that like no one would have thought to do she was just like so everyone just gets to pick a cool egyptian sounding name and then we'll that's what we're gonna call you for the unit and then she made us like perform myths in class like she would stand there or sit there and read the myth and then she would assign kids like okay you're horus you're osiris and then so she would like Read the thing off and be like, okay, you run across the room and pretend to like blind your classmate. We have to <laughs> recreate the blinding of Horus. So looking back, I'm like, that was really violent for a bunch of what sixth graders? You're like ten
1: or whatever at that age. Sixth graders love sex and violence. Though they won't say sex, they'll be like. S-B-S. <laughs> <laughs>
4: In whispered, hushed tones, as you <laughs> look around nervously, like, Am I gonna get in trouble for saying this? Yeah. Forbidden. Yeah, one. for sure. Like, kudos to you for realizing how hard of a path it would be to actually become an Egyptologist. I mean, was it a thought you entertained for like all of two seconds because you just knew it was gonna involve school? Or did you ever actually be like, Okay, I'm gonna seriously look into what it would take to do this?
1: I mean, I've never been a child. Um, so I've always kind of thought this way. And yeah, I did consider it. And I, you know, thought I, I, I did think about taking that path. And I actually like considered it even when I got to college. I took uh, anthropology 101 and I failed it because I'm terrible at regurgitating
4: information as it is taught. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, I can remember that. But also I'm like, okay, but anthropology, just like looking back at it is like the worst thing you can take as an introductory course. And I know this firsthand because I did not know exactly what to do. So by the time I got to college, I think I went in and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an anthropology major, and that's going to help me go find some mummies or do whatever. And then within like the first two months of being in school, realizing all these classes were far too scientific, and I'm just objectively shit at science, just not gonna happen so I like talked to the advisor and then I was kind of like you know I'm having problems I don't know if I'm gonna make it here so like is there a better fit or are there just classes that I'm not aware of that are better so she was like I don't know what you want just why don't you sit down and tell me what you want I just like kind of explained what I wanted and she was like oh yeah no that's that's not here like you're not gonna find that this is too sciency for you she's like unless you actually want to go into archeology span and like dig and do stuff. Yeah. Leave us. (laughs) So then, then that's how I kind of found my way into classics. Cause I just, yeah, I, you know, Egypt's hard. So how do I go learn about ancient Greece? Cause that's my other jam. And so she was like, yeah, we have a classics department. Why don't you go talk to the advisor? So that's how I found my way into, into my degree, but in terms of like myth and stories and just, all that being kind of the, the the beginnings of all good stories, I would say. Were you more drawn to like Egyptian mythology or like the Greek and Roman stuff?
1: I think Greek and Roman mythology is easier to absorb because there's like a lot more of it. And Egyptian mythology is weird. And I I like its weirdness and like I've I've consumed its weirdness unabashedly. But know there's just like so much more fun to be had at least in western society with the exploration of classical mythology you know you've got these stories with which you know so much of our stories are based on so like you've got orpheus and eurydice and like any any tragic love story can kind of fall onto that or you know the myth of of hades and persephone and that can also be a story of romance or a story of kidnapping, you know, depending on who's, who's telling the tale and how much they love brooding goth boys. You know, the trials of Heracles, the stories, uh, basically anything involving Zeus knocking somebody or something or some animal up. Uh, I don't know how these apply to our everyday life, but yet they have endured into our, into our conscious storytelling. And I think that's super cool. It's, it's kind of like Shakespeare in that you have to come to terms with, you know, Greek mythology as an influence on basically every type of Western writing source. And so going straight to the source is something that I like to do when it comes to writing inspiration. And so, yeah, I, I did,
4: I do deep dives into that. So how much did that sort of background and that existing interest help you or excite you when you knew you were going to be able to work a little on Odyssey?
1: I was stoked. Like I kind of stumbled into getting work on Odyssey. I was like, oh, I, it's too bad I didn't get to work on the Ancient Egypt Assassin's Creed because that's my jam. And then when they gave me the writing test for the project that I was going to be going on, it's like, oh, do, do all of this stuff in the context of Origins the writing test it always goes one game back so it's like create an assassin's creed villain based on based in origins so like an ancient egyptian assassin character and i was like i get to name one after an egyptian god <laughs> and yeah so that was a lot of fun and then getting to work on odyssey i was like yes it's the ancient greece one but i came on pretty late to that project so i didn't get to do like any of the foundational stuff, but I did get to do some really cool stuff considering how late on to the project I was brought.
4: Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite bit of what you did on Odyssey? I mean, is there anything, if you came on late, you, you can't obviously do the foundational stuff, but you know, were you able to infuse some of the stuff you were given with more of the mythological elements or was it much more like it was too late?
1: Uh, and i I like to think that i put my own special sauce on everything that i touch more like something that was important to me about the parts of odyssey that i wrote was that these were real people with real beliefs and i wanted to honor that and so i never wanted to use you know beliefs in the gods as you know look at these wacky ancient greeks they believed all of these ridiculous things You know, it's like, these are, this is what people believed at the time, or to the best of our knowledge, given the evidence that we have. And I also wanted to pay homage to the fact that humanity doesn't change. People were still having the same problems 2,000 years ago that they're having today. At the end of the day, you know, everyone's just living and breathing and eating and dying. Everybody's fallen in love with somebody they shouldn't be. (laughs) But uh, some of my favorite stuff that I got to do in Odyssey was there was a Trojan horse in that game and I don't know why the Trojan horse was there. I think that there was, you know, some, some very enthusiastic members of production who were like, we have to, we have to have this in the game. And it's like, but, but it's past the Trojan war. That was, that was years ago. And so I, I was the guy who got handed the Trojan horse. That's like, here, do something with this. And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> i can't believe we fell for that yeah cassandra goes to hang out with some spartan guys on the beach and they she, she brings what is supposed to be a very important package from the general's wife and it's just full of party favors and so there's just like this time passage thing of uh, you know and she's just like i remember doing all these mushrooms chasing chickens through a field i do not remember building a trojan horse and then comedic pan to there being a very real Trojan horse in front of them on the beach. And they're like, what the hell? How did this Trojan horse get here? And then all of these enemies come out of the t- come out of the horse and they're like, I can't believe we fell for that.
4: Oh my gosh. I was like, as you're describing this mission, I remember that and thinking, why is there a Trojan? I mean this is hilarious. And it's such a great Easter egg for anyone who's into classics but i'm also like this is so random this is great i love this
1: yeah i I mean i figure like there is when you are making a game about a set period of time and in the terms of like ancient greece there is so much time throughout all of ancient greece that like it's very easy to be like jurassic park and actually have all of these dinosaurs that didn't exist together (laughs) sharing a park (laughs) and so odyssey was our greek history greek mythology theme park which is like wait a minute that's from a thousand years before this game takes place it's like yeah but people will complain if it's not here (laughs) (laughs) i want to see a tyrannosaurus rex um actually they're from the wrong uh era there's actually a few million years between tyrannosaurus rexes and the uh, creatures you're seeing here today so (laughs) (laughs)
4: that's true i mean okay so so when you're like writing this stuff because you're handed something and you're just like okay i will do my best with what i am given sure this is great and it's obviously a really just fun project to, to do for yourself but does it ever enter your mind as you're creating things hey we're using historical material there may be actual classicists out there who are going to take a fine tooth comb to this and they're going to dissect everything we're doing. Does that give you more pressure to want to do things accurately? Or are you just like, no, I'm just going to continue to do something really funny and they're just going to hopefully laugh at this?
1: I, I'm i much more of the second cap, which is I have made peace with the fact that I make edutainment. I mean, what is Assassin's Creed if not Ancient Aliens, the video game? Um <laughs> We give people a starting point for if they get really interested in something, it's like, hey, I want to learn more about the Peloponnesian War. So here you go. This is the Peloponnesian War. Here's kind of a rough breakdown of what happened. If you want to become a classicist and, you know, look at this, or, you know, if you're really enthusiastic about Odyssey and you you want to watch that YouTube video, you know, it's like classicist ranks 120 mishaps in uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And I'm like, good, go, go, go for it. Get your clicks. I think it's kind of, it's, it's its own ecosystem at this point, which is Assassin's Creed games over here. And then the YouTube channels that nitpick Assassin's Creed games over here. I'm like more people, you know, getting exposed to it, checking it out, wanting to learn more. I mean, I think that if I can encourage people to pursue knowledge, then I've done my job right.
4: Yeah, for sure. When writing for Odyssey, you know, did you have it in your mind that because Cassandra's canon, you were just writing for her exclusively? Or did you have it in your mind that you're writing kind of for two people? I like
1: to keep Alexios in mind, though, you know, personally, whenever I was picturing a scene, I was like, okay, so Xena walks in. Um, <laughs> But sometimes I would be like, so Hercules walks in, and he looks at the sky, and he goes disappointed. Really, uh, you know, Cassandra and Alexios were much more fluid in terms of their characterization than, say, Avor, which is I could kind of come up with basically Commander Shepard type stuff when it came to Cassandra or Alexios. If you'll if you'll follow me on this, so it's like nice guy, mean guy something you know kind of neutral as like the options that you use for that or like this character genuinely believes that they are the child of a god that they are a god child and there's really are they wrong no this is the humble kind of mercenary who's like look i'm just a dude here to help out and so we had all of these different kind of options that the player could take and so a player could be like a really nice character who genuinely believed that they were the child of a god and therefore they were kind of arrogant and pious but generally did the good thing and that could be Alexios and that could be Cassandra or you could have you know I was always writing for was the stinky mercenary (laughs) but again that's just how I saw myself writing Cassandra and I liked to be able to give every player the option to play who their Cassandra or who their Alexios was
4: yeah for sure I mean being a classics major and then the, so that byproduct being I have a billion classics nerds all around me who we just love to talk about this game all the time for the different things we spot in it. For me, I was like, this is great. I'm all on the further female representation in gaming for sure. I was pissed about them cutting so much of Aya out of origins because i was like she's the freaking other main character she's the mother for god's sakes and she doesn't even like get a scene with her own child like how is this okay but regardless of that yeah i i I would say (laughs) i know a lot of stodgy classicists who would say well i liked everything Odyssey did except for the fact that they have a main playable female character who's a spartan who they didn't change her story because historically, this could not happen. This was an impossibility. So, blah, blah, blah. If you're gonna, you know, have representation in there, you should have made her, like, a a separate character who just wasn't, like, a Spartan warrior. How do you balance, or how do you deal with the people who are just like, this is great, but you should have made her someone different, because there were no Xena warrior princesses in ancient Greece.
1: You know, I think that there's, like, a validity to that, but just because there's no recorded evidence of something doesn't mean that that's not somebody's story down the line. I mean, there's lots of civil war soldiers were women who cut their hair off and stuffed socks down their crotch and pretended not to menstruate. And there are lots of sailors who were women who cut their hair off and stuffed socks down their pants. And I realized that it's a lot more difficult than Sparta where they would wrestle nude. <laughs> But kind of at the end of the day, sometimes you just got to turn off your historian brain and say, this is cool. I'm enjoying my time here. Yeah, I I wish that this was the story as it was told. I would love to tell this story. And that's why I kind of lean into at least Odyssey and um, Valhalla being the folklore Assassin's Creed games, which is Cassandra may or may not have existed but her name was passed down through folklore. And it's like, these were the, these were the grand, you know, adventures of the mythios Cassandra. And everything that you do in that game, if you think of it as a folklore, that's being told down by all of these different stories. And so it's like, some people have this different view of Cassandra where it's like, oh, she was this great and pious warrior. And other ones were like, she was a stinky mercenary and she slept with my sister and she stole my goat. Um, and there might be a kernel of the truth of both of these stories. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what I appreciate about, about them. So the short version of that is nitpickers can die mad. <laughs> I'm sorry that the game was too fun for you.
4: Great answer. I, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 those are like the debates. I swear I tend to, to find myself in a lot and I don't know why that keeps happening i mean i do but like i also get very confused when i'm like it's entertainment like it's not ubisoft only says that they try to use some kernels of historical accuracy they're not trying to be like a biopic right here being like this is actually what happened in history bro did you get this mad when tom cruise was the last samurai or do you just hate women (laughs) (laughs) yeah important questions yeah i don't know i mean so with with valhalla obviously you know nothing to do with classics but it's still very much rooted in a different kind of mythology as well but also it's a different time so i feel like you know by then female warriors were very much more common and accepted i suppose in in viking in in norse culture Um, there's debate on that as well that I'm not well I feel like you have more stories you know whether they're true or not that's a different question I don't know when I first heard of Eivor and I heard that the email was hopefully going to be canon was like oh I got this idea in my head of shield maiden Eowyn type of Lord of the Rings lady and she kind of ended up like that I
1: would I would argue that Eivor is even more intense than Eowyn
4: I don't know, man. the I am no man stab in the face is pretty intense, but it's hey. pretty
1: intense, but like when when Antwin's not doing those things, she's just kind of a chill dude, whereas Eivor is always on that level of intensity.
4: <laughs> that's true. that's true. So so how much of mythology did you draw on when writing for Eivor? Like I don't know that much about Viking religion and how seriously they took these things i'm guessing it's very different from the extent obviously that the ancient greeks believed things but do you get to to kind of play around with that and shaping this person as a character or are you you very much firmly no i have to think about this like a real person
1: i think it we we wanted to balance both i don't know have you completed valhalla do you you know the big secrets
4: I have. I, uh, I'm ashamed to say that when the game first dropped, I stayed up every night until like 4 a.m. playing it, got very little sleep, and got through the main storyline at least in about 85 hours, so I finished the whole game in about a week. That was a very intense week that I will not be repeating, but it was fun. Yeehaw! I mean, that just means you were
1: invested, right? When it came to Eivor's characterization, we wanted to balance the mortal woman with the divine man and pulling from both of those. So Eivor's writing guidelines were different than Cassandra and Alexios's writing guidelines in that Eivor always had to be kind of at this war with herself that she didn't understand, which was her own desire, her own mortal need for community and her divine need for power. And so Odin's answers would always be more selfish In more in the pursuit of power or the pursuit of knowledge, which are Odin's motivations. He always goes off on these adventures by himself and is willing to sacrifice anything kind of in his pursuit. You know, he cuts his own eye out, he hangs himself on a tree in order to to gain the wisdom which he seeks. Whereas Eivor has an entire community that relies on her. You know, she is the Jarl of her settlement. And so it's it's kind of at war with that, which is that if she was a good Jarl, she would stay home. And that's what the fight with Dag is about. But she still wants to go out there. She still wants to learn and she wants to to gain power and influence. And so that's the momentum of her character, which is we have these moments where she wants to look back. She wants to go back. She wants to settle down. And even like sometimes when she does get a glimpse of that life, but she's always kind of, pushed forward by this this need
4: yeah as a creator okay so I understand that the game itself was very much you're trying to straddle that line but you know say you can you know do do your own project as a creator would you rather delve completely into the mythological aspect and just do like a whole myth game or would you rather delve into like a more realistic humanistic kind of experience or or do you actually like straddling the the balance
1: I like straddling the balance because I think that that's how the world is. This is my very Neil Gaiman esque take, but I, you know, I think that folklores and and myths and legends are out there, and they're still out there, and they live with us even now. You know, seeing shrines to old gods at the side of the road, or just walking through the forest and feeling like there is something divine there. I I think that. There is kind of a comfort, a human comfort in, in seeing the idea or the suggestion that there are powers beyond our control living among us. And being able to, to lean very heavily into one or into the other is a delight. Or even just sprinkling a little bit onto both where I, I always love those. Where it's like, wait a minute, was this interaction that I had with a real person or was I just speaking to a fey trickster god? And like, that shit can happen in uh, 869, you know, out on the moors, and that shit can happen on a street corner at three in the morning.
4: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Obviously, not every game creator, writer, developer is going to have the kind of background where we nerd out about mythology, or you have people who are invested in, in classics. Do you think it would be beneficial for everyone involved in anything creative like writing especially game creating to take mythology courses like beforehand so that way it's even if they don't need it it's like a handy skill that you can draw on and it just it it helps you get inspiration I guess or is it not actually that vital because you might want other skills before taking myth courses
1: I mean I'm gonna say it's not vital But I say that it's vital to me and my pursuit of knowledge and my soul. And I think that people should feel more comfortable pursuing their vested interests and their nerdy passions. And it's like, if you're really into, you know, Roman myths and legends, take a course on that. If you're really, you know, if you want to learn more about like the indigenous mythologies of the Pacific Northwest, fucking go for it. I I think that more people should study history and more people should study stories because, the end of the day that's that's what we are we're we're stories and the stories we tell each other and seeing where that comes from is a good way of seeing where you come from and deciding where you're going
4: yeah for sure i always come back to i like to know about the origin of all good stories and i believe that all modern creators are creating contemporary legends which hopefully will stick around for you know the next 200 years or or whatever you know you're someone who's heavily influenced by these mythological origins and the history so obviously you want to do all the deep dives but if it's not vital just in general like if we shouldn't be requiring some kind of mythology class for all young game devs and writers then does that leave like a does that leave a space for greater collaboration with people With classicists, with Egyptologists, with people, like, should we be involving them more than if you just want to be a good writer and you want to craft good narratives? So then to get the more mythological, historical parts, is that where this is leading us into just greater partnerships with academics? Absolutely. And just to preface,
1: like, when working on an Assassin's Creed game, we usually take a few months of just research time for the entire dev team to, like, deep dive into this era into the architecture the religion the fauna the flora all of that and deciding kind of like what we're gonna have because it's like you know we, we slam all of these books down onto a table everybody takes a book starts taking their notes and decides okay we can fit this many trees this many animals this kind of architecture And we decide the yeses and noes of what we're going to take because we know we cannot recreate the entire era one for one but on every Assassin's Creed game that I've worked on, there has been collaboration with linguists and historians and you know all sorts of experts, because as a writer, I love doing the research. I love putting in the time, but at the end of the day, I don't have a degree in classical mythology or Norse mythology, and I'm gonna get some stuff wrong. I'm, I'll be writing character names based off of a website that has its own index of names that should have been accurate to that time period. I have no way of knowing. I send them to a story and the historian hems and haws over like better versions of them or sends me a thumbs up. You know, it's their job to know. It's my job to to tell a good story. And I hope that more historians can get involved in or classicists or, you know, academic experts can get involved in video game creation because I think that's one way of keeping the culture alive and also, you know, getting people paid outside of universities.
4: Um, Amen to that. I mean, you know, I can speak to the more academic side and I've had great conversations with other academics who all maintain, I would love to be able to contribute some way to any form of media that is trying to do a recreation of the ancient world. You know, there's film and TV for sure, but also video games. And I think honestly, video games are doing a better job currently I don't know why that is per se Uh, I mean is there something about the gaming world that just makes it easier to ask academics to join
1: I don't know I think that video games allow you to slow down and spend as much time in the museum as you want whereas TVs and and I think that a lot of tv and movie stuff might just boil down to like run-of-the-mill laziness and sexism Just like, oh, we don't care. We want to see boobs and we want to see violence. And this is what we are selling. And so we will have boobs and violence, uh, even if it's not historically accurate boobs and violence. (laughs) And, you know, in video games, we have lots of boobs and violence too. Don't, Don't get me wrong. I'm not calling out TV and movies for that problem. But in a video game, like, as I was saying, like the designers spend all of this time researching how a basket would be woven in this time. And so like that level of detail goes into that. And like, there are experts like this who work on TV and film productions. Like I always love watching the behind the scenes because I know that designers frequently do amazing jobs and I wanna see their work. And so getting to have like digital versions of that work is very cool and allows for stuff like our toured versions of the games for for students and and non-gamers alike. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what encouraged Ubisoft originally to reach out to historians for it. We actually have multiple or at least one historian hired by the studio full time. And I hope that other studios like, follow that path and create more academic jobs.
4: Yeah, it's something that I spend way, way too much of my time thinking about, honestly. I probably it would be a shame to admit how much time I spend thinking like why, why or how can academics get into these writing rooms, into these creation areas that's not just the realm of the history people. Have you have you been involved with any of the Discovery Tour stuff? Or is that like a completely separate realm?
1: It's a separate project. So when you work on The game you might get tapped to work on the discovery tour afterwards but i always moved on to a different project before that happened i'm like a shark if i stop swimming i die (laughs) no there's a lot of very talented very educated writers who work on the discovery tour and they often get more into kind of like the technical side of things and like giving the the true from the textbook definition of what was going on and like clearing up some of the misconceptions that the plot of the game might have left
4: so would it be fair to say that these writers are like the people who going in with a a finer paintbrush and like historical paintbrush i should say and just kind of glossing over some of the
1: yeah, they fill in the gaps. They, they, they do the, the fine detail work. And so I think that some of your nitpick friends might really appreciate the Discovery Tour because they'll be like, they didn't get that. And then they'll look at the Discovery Tour. It's like, actually, we did get that. We chose to do this because it was more entertaining.
4: Gotcha. Okay. So which arcs did you get to write for in Valhalla?
1: In Valhalla, I was the writer for London and Gloucestershire.
4: Okay. I th- I thought so. I- the Gloucestershire Arc is very very different from the rest of the game, honestly. Without spoiling it for people who haven't played it. It just it's it's a completely different tone and I feel like while the game definitely straddles that mythology and sort of half realistic, half accurate tone, this one just delves right into really heavily into myth and folklore. How fun was that just to be able to take the story and be like this is folklore on folklore
1: I loved being set loose on that there were times when the game was like we had to make cuts on the game and Gloucestershire was often on the the chopping block but we always came out because we were the palette cleanser territory and you know creative direction would come in and they'd be like oh this is so nice this is such a reprieve from just like burn and murder burn and murder and you know all of these viking machinations you know you you beat this guy and he has to become the king but this guy doesn't want him to become the king and that still happens in gloucestershire but it happens in halloween town leaning heavily into arthurian mythology so i wanted to honor the entirety of britain with gloucestershire And I'm sorry to the people who live in Gloucester who are like, oh, I wanted to see something very Gloucester-focused. I'm like, sorry, I'm glossing over, you know, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, bouncing all over, trying to make this very kind of Celtic mythology-heavy territory, kind of inspired by my own feelings and connections to the celebration of Halloween, which is Samhain, this this ancient Irish ceremony of... um, participating in the burning of effigies and uh, giving sweets to children because it's the end of the year just about to start the big winter frost and you know you have to fatten the kids up with like the last good stuff of the harvest and so like I think that that is just a you know I could talk about Halloween for hours but I wanted Gloucester to be an homage not just to, to Celtic mythology but also to I mean Arthurian mythology which is about how the pagan part of england merged with the christian part of england and how modern anglican god-fearing england is still living with some of those pagan spirits and they never really fully civilized themselves in the eyes of god in the eyes of that god should i say and uh, a lot of these practices are still are still done in modern england like hoodening and um burning of effigies and wearing animal masks and participating in in strange rituals they're just like oh yes we do that and then we go to church on Sunday.
4: Oh I loved it yeah I I I did I enjoyed that it was kind of a hodgepodge because I could I I studied abroad in Ireland and in Scotland actually and then I have friends who live down in, in England so you know I've been all over that part of the world and just seeing all those cultural references was very very fun for me but also in that part of the the map the country um you know you're you're getting into heavy language details right with some welsh stuff some very old english very difficult to pronounce things so yeah. did you get to work with linguists on that or were you just like i'm going to find something in a book that's really old and use it we worked with linguists on
1: that i you know did some of my own research We had a Welsh expert. We had an Old English expert. And we certainly included input from them. Gloucestershire had the unfortunate experience of being one of the first kind of territories to record just after COVID hit. And so a lot of our original cast for it had to we had to rely on Canadian cast because we had originally cast a bunch of English and Welsh actors to, to do that territory. And then because of COVID constraints, we could go through with that, which was a bummer, but our uh, Canadian cast did a fantastic job. And uh, we even did get, did get uh, Mark Bonner, who was famous for playing Blackbeard in Assassin's Creed Black Flag. He played Kunin, the, uh, the king of Gloucester, the, the Elderman rather. And yeah, I was actually going in and recording the Welsh pronunciations for that, some of them last minute. And uh, then we'd get back, you know, it's like, dude, the the Norse and the Danish and the Icelandic actors cannot pronounce these words. <laughs> English is already their second language. We're doing our best. And I'm like, it's not that hard to say Kjladren
4: i took a class of the irish language and let me tell you though there are some words where like sounds you would never be making just sort of are coaxed out of you so i can only imagine i mean you know english is my first language and here i am and i'm like huh how do i say this <laughs> help me well, So
1: it's this fun game i play whenever i go to visit family in wales they'll be like betty do you want to know how to pronounce this sign I'm like, yeah, <sighs> and so you know, that's that's how I understand the Welsh pronunciation. I have I have that in because uh, our family's originally from Plangoflon.
4: Yeah, I have a, a friend who's on the English Welsh border, so she can pronounce all the things. And I'm just like, I don't even want to try that. That that I feel like that would hurt me. Not really, but like, yeah, yeah. I want to know a little bit then because she was part of your arc, Bridget what is she speaking? I asked a linguist friend of mine who was trained and even she was just like, I'm a linguist and I have no idea what that is. Like, I
1: can't figure this out. She's, she's speaking English with a heavy northern Welsh accent and a little bit of shortcuts in terms of slang provided by the Welsh actress who played her. <laughs> That's modern English, baby.
4: What? <laughs> okay. Okay. That I is can understand
1: everything that Bridget is saying, but abor can't and that's why <laughs> her
4: subtitle is unintelligible. That's so impressive because I honestly thought she was speaking Welsh for like a hot second because I was like, I've been around enough Welsh people. I-, I think I could probably tell what this is and nope straight up. nope. <laughs> no. So you know that's impressive if you can fool some linguists out there into because my linguist friend was literally like, this may be some sort of ancient welsh maybe <laughs> and i was like we were we literally took a notebook and sat down and she was trying to sound out and write out words she thinks that she understood and still was like i so so in the end she did the kind of a joke like the one that was put in the game where she, she like held up the notebook in front of me and just had written unintelligible <laughs> i was like like, oh okay then this is fantastic
1: (laughs) yeah there was there was a we wanted to lean even harder into that gag or i specifically wanted to lean in even harder into that gag and have bridget spoil the entire plot of the arc for eivor but eivor can't understand what bridget is saying you know she'd be like oh be careful i think kudan's gonna frame you for murder (laughs) and eivor was like cool thank you it was nice to meet you too And we, we got to do that a little bit when you have, like, you know, you're in disguise and you have to find somebody to help you. You're looking for Kunin and it's like, okay, I need to find somebody I know. And it, like, zooms in on Bridge and Aver's like, no! <laughs> like,
4: anyone but her!
1: <laughs> yeah. And then Gwyneth uh, comes by and, and Eivor's like, oh my god, thank you, I understand you.
4: What a, what a great experience, though, to be in a place where you should sort of be able to understand people and then still it's like a foreign country where you're just like I I can't I'm sorry I don't know what I'm doing here
1: like well I mean that should have happened more in the game (laughs) because Eivor speaks Norse and can't read English
4: yeah (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I mean it's impressive either way I mean honestly the only people I say who are gonna catch half of these things are like Classics majors who just really want to be pedantic about everything, right? I mean classic majors. <laughs> Hi, that's us. Unfortunately, we our reputation precedes us <laughs> as a creator on the creative side. Do you find that there's more leeway and entrance points for using classic material and expressions? in digital media so video games and and film and stuff or the written word like you get to be an author and write a book
1: I think that people are much more fine-toothed come with authors than they are with video games though it's interesting that like you will get a genuine academic challenge to a book whereas in a video game it's death by a thousand nitpicks but at least currently the state of video games is not one for educated masses. You know, a lot of people who are playing these games are not playing them after like coming home from their job at the university. And so any facts that they learn from them, they might have their own reason for being able to spot an inaccuracy, you know, like due to a family member or their own vested interest in Norse mythology or whatnot. And they might be able to pick that out. But, you know, it's not the same as somebody with a master sitting down to play Valhalla and taking a, a, a shot every time something inaccurate happened.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing, right? You make something that kind of appeals to everyone and then it brings together people from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different professions, and everyone will find something unique within the game for them, right? It's, it's one of the things that I appreciate most and that I wish I wish the humanities were able to do that in their own way and not have to rely on being turned into some sort of consumable media. I don't know. And, and that that could just be a problem of funding, right? Giant game companies have huge budgets and this is what they're for. So they exist to make entertainment where they can put cool historical things or mythological things in them. But humanities budgets are famously lacking, is what I'll say, so that you're lucky if you get 10 classes on these cool things that people probably would want to learn more about if they had the chance. To me, it seems like a global downward trend. So feel free to correct me if if it seems differently in, in Canada. But for the last... 50 years people just have stopped seeing the value any kind of applicable value i should say in programs like the classics like egyptology so you know sadly we're not getting funding so people are just kind of being told you should just not do that because that won't help you this literally will lead to nothing and you can't do anything with this so it doesn't need to be here is there a a kind of trend like that going on in canada
1: There is the defunding of the arts is, I I feel like it is global in its way. And it's a shame because, you know, they instead people are pouring all of this money into stuff like tech and sports and everybody wants to be, you know, Gronk or Bill Gates. And, uh, those are kind of the only paths that you're given in high school. I feel like there's a lot of pressure for students to perform, to be the best, to be this like Christopher Paolini of tech or, or whatever, You know, every every teenager, I feel like it's even worse for the current generation than it was for my generation, the belief that, like, you are the special, and you are going to save the world with whatever silly hobby you have, and then just, like, pulling back the wool on that and being like, no, you are going to have a degree and work at Starbucks with people you hate, and I think that that's, that's a shame, and that's a tragedy, and that there is value in the arts and the academics and... Everything that is known about these can be reapplied. And, and sadly, I think a lot of them should be reapplied through media since it seems that that is the job that pays. So it's like, oh, all of these classics nerds, you guys are going to go on. We're going to we're going to corral you into this pen and you're going to become, you know, the classics nerds who are the consultants for this television program about Xena. Uh, (laughs) i'm just calling for that xena revival right now and you know all of these these uh, nordic studies nerds you know you guys come over here you work on this viking show from the last kingdom you work on frozen and yeah it's a shame that there isn't more media that is dedicated into kind of like the slow burn history or even just like slowing down and having conversations about interesting topics Uh, I'm going to reveal myself as a Star Trek nerd now, but, you know, I I have appreciation for, like, the big-budget blockbuster-type media, and, like, Assassin's Creed games are big-budget blockbuster games. We are not a quiet, meditative game on mortality. You know, if if you want that, you get Wayfarer. And, you know, we're not a game you know that's that's just about one thing it has to be about all of these things It has to appeal to all of these people i think that a lot of the media is still trying to do that they're still trying to make their own marvel cinematic universe out of these properties that shouldn't all be doing that i don't even think the marvel cinematic universe should be doing what it's doing I would love them to slow down a single Avengers film and have equal characterization time for all of these characters who they've had in 22 movies and we still don't know their relationships to each other. But yeah, like I think that if there was space on (laughs) the History Channel (laughs) for like a show about ancient Greece that isn't just about boobs and murder and is instead, you know, talking about the real lives of people in like the Peloponnese, I think that that would have an audience that studios are just kind of scared to take any risks these days
4: although you know with all the crazy things on the history channel these days you know do you ice- really want to be on the same thing that has like ancient ice roads
1: trucking aliens
4: <laughs> oh gosh yeah i i i admit like if i'm just if i have like the worst case of insomnia ever i'll like flip on the history channel and just be like okay so what ancient alien things are you talking about today i just want to know what they're talking about just in case just to see
1: talk about the secret planet in between the earth and the moon that you can never see because it always hides when you look at it
4: yeah their their theories can definitely range from like the bizarre to the straight up an alien ship was seen building the pyramids and here's the evidence da 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 We're going to
1: find evidence of El Dorado in some Mexican family's backyard while they watch us in bewilderment as we take a backhoe to their play (laughs) place.
4: Yeah, just like bizarre things. But yeah, I think, you know, there would be definitely uh, an appetite for that. And, you know, this, this is something, this is a quandary that I wrestle with with a lot of my friends who are academics is how do academics make a good job of selling themselves as Something profitable that could probably go where the money is if you give us a chance. So I think the big frontier right now is as historians, as classicists, how do we qualify for things like grant from the National Science Foundation? Like tangible, scientific, like convincing people in STEM to give non-STEM people like humanities people essentially convincing them that your humanities can can work and tie in so well with STEM fields that you somehow hoodwink them into giving you massive STEM funding if you're involved in video games even at all can that be considered STEM yeah I mean you're a writer for sure and that's usually considered a humanities but since you're working on video games can we be like hey you're in STEM
1: Yeah, I have been invited to women in STEM talks as a guest, not as a speaker or anything like that. So I guess there is that crossover there. And what is Portal, if not a STEM game? It's a great narrative game, but I would say that it's a great example of the pillars of STEM.
4: Yeah. So, you know, these are weighty topics that, I mean, believe me, a lot of us have spent so much time thinking, like, how do you convince somebody that... Even though your background is definitely humanities, what you're involved in can count as STEM. And so maybe that's an avenue to opening up funding options, essentially, because... Just
1: taking a theater class to get better at lying and selling yourself.
4: (laughs) Which is great. I don't
1: mean that in a mean way. I'm somebody who used to go to theater and I, I, I feel very comfortable in any situation that I'm in because I'm used to acting. And I think that if the problem is not being able to communicate correctly the ways that you think that you could transfer the the humanities to to the STEM, then perhaps, you know, work on, workshop a monologue on it.
4: I think that's a great idea. I mean, you know, I'm always talking about how we should be talking to actors for sure, because actors should have, I think, I'm very biased, of course, but I think all actors should have some kind of mythology course requirement just because... There's, there's so much room for all these professions to be so interdisciplinary. So it's like, why not encourage that? And then if you tie everything together, you can't defund us, right? Uh, that's, uh-huh. that's, a, <laughs> that's a theory, right? We're hoping, we're trying things. We don't know what we're doing. I think um, that
1: humans are really good at solving problems when put together. So for example, there were questions that archaeologists had about how a certain egyptian hairstyles were done like we don't get it we don't know how it was made show it to a hairdresser <laughs> hairdresser goes oh i know how to do this and the answer was a needle and thread and so it's like they sewed their wigs on because that's what we still do and like that's a very easy answer to come to if your specialty is hair but if your specialty is history you might not come to that conclusion And I just think that, like, this is why we have interdisciplinary teams. And I think that we should definitely have that for all things because we like solving problems and we like working together. And I think that we're pretty good at it once corralled into the right pen.
4: Oh, for sure. I mean, hey, that's human nature. We're problem solvers. Just, you know, give us a problem and let us actually figure it out. As a creator going forward and doing expanding and doing new things in the future. Is there any particular kind of historical thing, mythological thing that you want to do in the future?
1: I've really lucked out with, with the material that I've had in AC. I mean, that's that's kind of the conversation that we always have around the writing table is like, okay, if you could choose an AC, what topic or what time period would you choose? I would really love to do something involving the Pacific Islands, like like the Tongan Empire, the Hawaiian Empire. I think that would be really, I don't have as much knowledge on that as I would like to, and that would be a great excuse to do a deep dive onto it. I would love to see like Aztec, Mayan, Inca, Olmec cultures explored more in fiction and uh, West African mythology. And even, even like where I'm from, which is BC, the West the West Coast of British Columbia has a very rich and lush mythology and a history that is built on uh, all of these different cultures kind of coming together in ways that I'm, I'm just very passionate about. Like I found out that people from BC talk slower to accommodate a translation period and that it was actually a speaking speed picked up from the indigenous people there. And so like you talk slow to give the other person time to translate what you just said and then reply.
4: Okay, I had never heard of that before. So at the end of each podcast episode, I have each guest read the Percy Shelley version of Ozymandias. So just kind of after reading the poem, if you could just give us your hot takes. It's such a great poem and it's it's so evocative. Yeah, great poem.
3: And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
1: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's
4: bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
1: I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell its sculptor well these passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look upon my works ye mighty and despair, nothing beside remains found the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sand stretched far away percy i could talk about the romantics for hours i love how he influenced martin luther king and gandhi with his teachings and how he and byron were the first celebrity vegetarians and how like celebrity culture stems from these guys and how you know if you want to feel bad about not having written a novel at 15 feel bad about having not invented a literary genre at 16 because Mary Shelley was 16 years old She's like I think I will invent science fiction today <laughs> I have miscarried a child on my trip here to the lake house we were supposed to be having a sunny summer but because Mount Tambora erupted there is no summer this year <laughs> And, you know, the year without a summer is such an interesting point in history. You know, the last kind of major global catastrophe that affected the entire planet um, and invented science fiction and also Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> so look on, look on those works, ye mighty in despair. I, I think that it's very humbling to think of what you leave behind and what gets left behind being kind of two different things. Which is, you know, there's your choice and your legacy, and then there's the rest of humanity and the rest of the world's choice in your legacy. And so, you know, you can be the king of kings and dissolve into dust at the same time. Or, you know, in a time that is a mere blink in the the major yawn of existence.
4: For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to read this beautiful sonnet and not think of, like, the transience of power, right? It speaks to me at least as kind of a, a testament to human pride. Ramesses uh Osmandius was just his his Greek name, but we know we know who Ramesses II was. We know what he did. We know what his empire looked like back then. And the the fact that it's so ironic that he says, you know, look on my work, see mighty, and despair to be followed up with the fact that we technically wouldn't know anything about you or your empire if it weren't for like finding its ruins. And then even then the giant sculpture, like it had to be crafted by somebody who was not the King, like for sure. So if, if we're thinking about it in terms of, you know, you should be humble. You shouldn't just brag about yourself and say, "Um, yes, my, my dynasty will last a thousand years in the future because I'm that great. you know, a a fun question I always like to ask each guest is, if you think about the poem in terms of like, this is some statement on, hey, your political power is actually kind of fleeting, despite what you believe. Is there a modern Ozymandias today in our society? Is there something that we think that is the kind of be all end all great thing, but like, will we look back at something 2,000 years from now and be like, ha! And we thought that was the coolest thing ever. I still
1: think Ozymandias is one of the coolest things ever, though. Like, what I take away from the poem is that if you're going to make a testament to your greatness, make it big enough to be a fucking mountain. (laughs) Like, that shit lasts. The pyramids last. You know, the the Aztec pyramids last. The Olmec heads are still around because they made that shit out of stone and they made it big. Uh, you know if, if if i guess my advice for who i consider the modern alzymandias is is like don't go digital build yourself a massive stone library it's something that's going to last before there, were books, big there was architecture which told us that which was important you know you'd found out where the where the house of god was because it was the biggest house on the street
4: okay so so go big or go home in other yeah. words build yourself monumentally huge stone works and then hopefully the like climate change won't destroy it too much and then and then it'll be found in 2000 years
1: yeah you know if if i make a big enough stone sphinx of myself all of the erosion will do its do its work and
4: then in
1: 2,000 years, they'll be like, this must have been a very important person.
4: <laughs> so so uh, maybe then the statement should be the entire internet is a modern Ozymandias where we think it's like the greatest thing ever right now, but like it won't last or... Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, unless, unless people are archiving internet threads, it's like, dude, your Twitter handle lasts as long as the website keeps its server up. You are but a fleeting blip in this great yawn of existence. So yeah.
4: Oh, I like that. Okay, well, I'm going to say then that's that's a great answer though. <laughs> build out of like strong materials because the internet is transient and 2000 years from now, assuming all servers die, we're not going to remember anything about the internet like what was that Twitter? What was no that one, thing?
1: No one's going to remember your 50,000 in- Instagram followers, but everybody thinks my castle to myself is rad. <laughs>
4: Oh, I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. That's, that's one of the more fun answers that I've gotten. I, now I want to build like a giant mausoleum to myself. So everyone just thinks I've won.
1: Yeah.
4: So everyone thinks I'm like important and amazing when I wasn't president. I wasn't this, that, or the other thing, but you will know me. You will know me by my giant ruins. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You will know me by my giant ruins. That's the most raw fucking thing, and it's it's my translation of Ozymandias.
4: Oh, it's fantastic! Oh, I want to use this in the future. I'll just go this for is it. great. This is great. Domain now. <laughs> yes, free to use. So, thank you for joining me today. It's been a real blast to to be able to talk about some of the more mythological things and just sort of ponder our way through some of these. Big questions. It's always fun to to sort of sit down and, and put nogans together.
1: Sure, and I'm always happy to knock my uh, noggin against some some more academic brains, because you know, spend it's, it's enough time in like entertainment, and it's like, oh, what is what is this? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's funny, and so it's good to to have that kind of like, the ability to pull yourself back from from relying on lowest common denominator material.
4: Yeah, for sure. It's always nice to have a good balance. So thank you, though.
1: Thank you. It was delightful to be here and to, to share this conversation
3: with you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, Near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?